Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. And I am really excited about today's episode. It is the first podcast that I'm doing on floating. For those of you who aren't familiar with floating, today's guest, Kevin Johnson, is going to explain it for you towards the beginning of the podcast. But it's an increasingly popular tool for exploring one's consciousness that's become really popular because of, I think, Joe Rogan in particular and... Duncan Trussell as well. Tim Ferriss has talked about it and really helped to popularize it. It is a technology that really has gone back to, I think, even the 1950s. I'm not as up on the history of floating, but it goes back to a guy named John Lilly, who's very into it in 60s, 70s. And then I believe the floating industry had a dip in the 80s, in part because of fears around the AIDS epidemic. And people didn't know much about AIDS. And so at the time and what caused it. And so anyways, fears about hygiene and using flotation tanks was one thing that helped to kind of cause a crash in the popularity of floating. But it has experienced a resurgence in the last several years in particular. And today's guest is uniquely well poised to give us insight into the value of the use of floating, I should say. So Kevin Johnson is the owner and CEO of Zero Gravity Institute in Austin, Texas, and he's the manufacturer of Zero Gravity Float Rooms. He's also a musician, an avid traveler, and a shamanic practitioner. With over 30 years and thousands of hours in the flotation tank, Kevin is considered a pioneer of float tank technology and offers an unprecedented amount of experience and knowledge about the world of flotation tanks, altered states of consciousness, and the exploration of non-ordinary realities. He has appeared on dozens of podcasts, including the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, Tangentially Speaking with Dr. Chris Ryan, the Aubrey Marcus podcast, many, many more, and most recently now, Hacking the Self. Kevin is also a busy public speaker and gives several presentations each year on a variety of topics, including flotation tanks, consciousness exploration, psychedelics, plant medicine, and modern shamanism. And before I segue to my conversation with Kevin, which went about, I think, an hour and 20 minutes, really interesting conversation. We spent vast majority of the time, I'd say probably two-thirds, talking about floating and then also segued into talking about plant medicine, specifically ayahuasca as well, since Kevin does a lot of work in that area, and I've done some recently as well, and, and we sort of enjoy talking about that as well and exploring parallels between ayahuasca and psychedelics generally and floating. But I want to mention how I came across Kevin's name and came across the name of his company, Zero Gravity. So when I was in Austin, Texas in November, I was there to give a talk to the Austin Psychedelic Society on meditation and microdosing. And at the end of my talk, I had one of the guests ask if I was into floating. And I said, I'd heard so much about it, but I had yet to float. And so he recommended 
that I float while I was in town at this phenomenal center, which he just raved about, called Zero Gravity. So I went to check it out. I bought a few passes, only got to use two of them, but did two sessions there and absolutely loved it. And the center was so high quality. I mean, everything about this experience, like imagine a really mix between a very high-end spa slash meets kind of minimalist design uh, slash mildly psychedelic, not in a tie-dye kind of way, but in a way that is aesthetically appealing and classy and appropriate to and well-designed for the experience, which floating induces. And so I went there, I had two floats at zero gravity and absolutely loved it. It definitely sparked my interest and made me want to float more because I had a sense that I really liked it and saw some parallels with meditation, but I could also see that it's really something one needs to do much more to get out of it, like anything, whether it's meditation or yoga or exercise. And Kevin talks a lot about that in our interview. But it piqued my interest and it gave me an amazing first impression. And so when I decided that I wanted to do a podcast on floating, the first choice was emailing the owner of Zero Gravity, whoever that was. I had no idea. So I just emailed the front desk at Zero Gravity in Austin and they put me in touch with Kevin. Kevin immediately got back to me and was so open to having a conversation and really made it clear he was going, he really wanted to have the talk. Just can't say enough nice things about him in terms of what open and nice and generous guy he is with his time. It's one of the things I love about this podcast. It's really an opportunity to meet great people and have interesting conversations, oftentimes, which I can tell will lead to more than just a conversation. And I had a feeling Kevin was one of those people. He's genuinely the kind of guy I would want to hang out with. And I I think we both had the feeling by the end of the conversation that that is something that will actually happen. And that's a testament to the power of technology that podcasting affords. So immediately set up that talk with Kevin. That was about a week ago and we've already made it happen. So I'm really excited about the conversation that we had. And I think it's something that will provide a lot to offer for people who are either new to floating or who are very experienced. So I really hope you enjoy it. And now I give you my conversation with Kevin Johnson, owner of Zero Gravity Institute in Austin, Texas. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? It's going good, Adrian. Thanks. How's everything with you? Going very well. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. Really appreciate it. I'm really excited to talk with you. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity, man. I'm looking forward to an interesting conversation. Absolutely. (laughs) And I'm so excited to be doing my first episode on floating with you because I'm new to floating. And the first float that I ever did was at your center in Austin, Texas. And I think there's the good and the bad of it. The good is 
I'm totally hooked because you offer such a premier service and the only bad may be, I don't know if anything's going to quite live up to how nice the experience is at zero gravity. It'll always be comparing things to that. But truly to anyone who's in Austin, they should definitely check out zero gravity because it's, it's a really nice, like premier experience that you all offer. Wow. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You know, we, we had some advantages when we decided to open that float center because of just the amount of history that my wife and I have both had around floating. You know, I've been floating for over 30 years now. So I really had some strong ideas about what I thought floating should be like and the kind of experience that should be cultivated around it. Floating can maybe something to talk about later, but floating can be a very intense experience. A lot of deep transformative work can happen in the float tank. And so it's really important, the environment around it, you know, the, the, your whole experience while you're there uh, should, should be very specifically cultivated to have a really effective experience. And we were just able to put that together. I'm really blessed that we have the opportunity to do that and bring that to our community. I definitely want to get there in terms of all the different esoteric aspects <laughs> yeah. of the tank. And in preparation for our talk, I listened to your interview with Duncan Trussell oh, yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> so that fully prepared me, I think, for going to the depths of aliens <laughs> and psychedelic experiences and whatever we want to talk you know, about. I, I love Duncan so much. You know, he's a good friend and it's so easy to talk to him and we can just go down that rabbit hole with such inhibition. He's a lot of fun to talk to. You know, I didn't quite realize you all were friends, but I guess that that should be apparent given the level of comfort <laughs> in your conversation. It's it's great to know. I actually just met Duncan for the first time because I went to the Ramdas oh, retreat. That was, oh, in Maui. Actually, that was incredible. Oh, it was phenomenal. It was so cool. It was truly one of the best experiences. And I'm like totally hooked and, and plan on going back. But I'd heard people talking a lot about Duncan's podcast beforehand and I'd heard one or two episodes but having the chance to meet him in person was really great he's the getting to know him just a little bit and the fact he's such a genuinely nice guy made me want to start listening to his podcast more and since then I've been totally hooked he's got an awesome show he does and it's very real you know when when you get to know Duncan you realize you're talking to the exact same personality that is on that podcast like he is so just truthful and real and genuine in uh, on his podcast, and I think that's what's so cool about it. Totally, he he definitely seems that way. And in order to learn more about floating, you know, he's been a good resource. I listened to your interview as well as the one with Chris Ryan uh -huh. at the Float Conference, and between Duncan and Joe Rogan, those are really the two people who kind of brought floating to my yeah, attention. Yeah, um, Joe's been really instrumental in spreading the word about it, and now. You know, other people like you say, Duncan and Chris Ryan, they, they're both real strong supporters. And I've done a lot of podcast interviews. People are picking up on the idea and, and we're getting an opportunity right now to share this information with people. It's such a beneficial thing to do. It's pretty easy to get excited about spreading the word. And so I try to take every opportunity I can to, you know, do interviews and podcasts and speaking engagements and stuff to let people know about the benefits of this really incredible technology. Well, I really appreciate your openness to having a conversation. So thank you again for that. I really want to get into kind of your personal story and how you first became interested in floating. But before we do that, can you just explain the basics for someone who's brand new and has no idea what floating is before we yeah. start talking about it all the time? What 
is floating. That's a great idea. So when you're looking at a float tank, what you're looking at is a, a chamber big enough that you can comfortably get a person in it. So there's several different kinds, different styles of tanks, everything from a, a small little tank to a pod that's shaped like an egg and opens like a clamshell to a larger room like what I manufacture. But they all basically work on the same principle, and that is that that chamber is lightproof and soundproof, and you're floating in about 10 or 12 inches of water, and we saturate that water with between eight and 1,200 pounds of Epsom salt. And then we heat that solution to 93 and a half, 94 degrees, which is what we call skin receptor neutral. It's, it's the temperature at which your skin doesn't register that water as warm or cool. It's just neutral. And because of the salt, you're floating, so there's no gravity. So no light, no sound, no temperature, and no gravity. Complete sensory deprivation. And in this very unique environment, it's probably the first time that most of us have felt anything other than the kind of constant downward pull of gravity on our body. And when that is missing from our experience, we free up about 90% of the workload that the brain and the central nervous system have to do. Your heart rate slows down because you're not pushing blood against gravity. You're lying still in the tank and floating, so you're not engaging your muscles, so your respiratory rate can go down. Your circulatory system expands because you've taken the gravity away. Just everything gets easier on your body and the body reallocates resources that it was using to deal with all this sensory input and starts to do background work that it normally doesn't get to do. And so you do things like extra digestion, healing, like if you're suffering from an injury or recovering from an athletic competition or whatever, it's useful for that. General stress reduction. It also frees up resources in the mind and your brain starts to work in a different way. It starts to produce extra neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin and melatonin, things like that. You get a pretty good rush of endorphins after you're in there for a while. It's really good if you're needing to like learn a new language or a new job skill or a program or something. And then the other thing that starts to happen with as your floating practice matures what most people find is that somewhere around float four, five, six, somewhere like that, you sort of have this epiphany, this aha moment when they start to realize that awareness is expanding, that they're exploring parts of their consciousness that they hadn't formally been introduced to. It's like you start experiencing altered states of consciousness and non-ordinary realities. And, and, and so a lot of our more veteran floaters, people with a real mature practice are starting to realize that it's extremely useful for that as well, almost more so than chronic pain and stress reduction and healing and things like that. Wow. Remarkable. That was even a whole host of benefits of which I was unaware. So that was a really wonderful overview and would love to sort of bookmark this and build on it later on. But I'd love to, uh, to hear how you got interested in this in the first place? Well, when I was younger, when I was uh, about, I guess I would have been about 19 years old. This was in the, in the mid eighties, uh, 86, I believe it was 86, 87. Um, I had just finished college and, um, was studying on, on the East coast 
and I kind of made a rash decision and moved out to Los Angeles. I, I, um, I had been studying uh, theater and music, and I had a good opportunity on the West Coast, so I, I went out to Los Angeles to um, start working out there. And right after I got there, I saw this article in the LA Weekly, and it, it showed a picture of a flotation tank. And it was a traditional uh, flo flotation tank made by a company called Samadhi. And they had used these Samadhi tanks in the movie Altered States. I don't know if you remember that movie, but uh, it's an old uh, Ken Russell movie. I think it was made around 1980, 81, something like that. And it starred William Hurt as a uh, Harvard scientist who went down to um, to Mexico to the Huichol Indians and brought back psychedelic mushrooms. And he uh, was taking the mushrooms in the flotation tank and then from there, it turns into like outrageous science fiction, but uh, I was a psychedelic kid. And so that movie made a huge impression on me. And when I saw this picture of this float tank in the LA Weekly and this, read this article about this flotation center that had opened up in Hollywood and you could rent one of these tanks by the hour and float in it. I mean, I was on that so fast. <laughs> I, th I thought that was the coolest thing. And um, so a buddy of mine... And I went in, you know, book, booked a couple floats and, and went in and floated. And I'll never forget it because when I got out of the tank, you know, I was pretty young and I, I, I was still, you know, experiencing and experimenting. And so I, I didn't know much about states of awareness and states of consciousness at the time. And so I felt a way that I had never felt before. And, um, I, I went down, I was living down at the beach. So I, I went by my apartment real quick and changed clothes and went down to the beach and I just started walking and I, I couldn't believe how like just centered and focused I felt. Right. So imagine like a 19 year old boy, like just what's going on, like psychologically and hormonally and spiritually and just, you know, it's, it's 19's crazy. It's chaotic. But here I was feeling like so centered and so well grounded and so at peace and at ease with myself. And I honestly couldn't, couldn't believe that this was from something as deceptively simple as just laying in a dark box full of warm salt water. It just, I, I couldn't put it together that this is what caused it. And, uh, I had great dreams that night and I felt really great the next day. And so I called up to the float center and I, I, I booked another float and I wanted to go check it out and make sure that's really why I was feeling that way. And on that visit after my float, I had an opportunity to meet one of the owners and I must've just been exuding such, uh, excitement. <laughs> he offered me a job right then. And, um, I didn't really need it, but I took it and just the opportunity to like learn about these tanks and to work around them. And, you know, part of the deal was that I could float as much as I wanted for free. So, uh, you know, I don't, no pun intended. I just dove in with, you know, head first and I've just floated constantly and started doing long, like overnight floats and just really experimenting with what this new technology that was being put in front of me, like what it was capable of. And, uh, I, I got hooked really young and I, I've been floating now for over 30 years. 
and uh, recently, uh, you know, about five years ago, started having ideas about opening my own center, and um, I had some ideas for designing uh, a more sophisticated flotation tank, one that was technologically a little more advanced than what else I was seeing out on the market, and, uh, and it kind of brought me to where we are today. Very cool. I'm curious to hear you sort of keep talking from a personal perspective. So you, you gave a great overview of the benefits, and I'd love to hear you elaborate on personally what it's done for you. You touched on it a bit there in your sort of or early forays into floating, but I'm curious sort of as you've done more over the years, as you've done these longer floats, how has floating evolved for you as a tool for consciousness exploration and any other benefits that you've derived from it? Well, you know, beyond the physical benefits that I talked briefly about, something starts to happen to your brain when you're in the tank. I kind of equate it to it's the technique that you do when you're cleaning up your hard drive. <laughs> I'm just trying to blank on what that's called. Defragmenting your hard drive, right? That kind of starts to happen in your brain. Like, for instance, like you'll have a memory about something in the tank. Like you, you get into these deep, deep states of relaxation where you're your brain waves start to slow down. They move from this active beta state that we're in right now, for instance, and it moves into a more relaxed meditative state, what we call alpha. So it's a slightly slower brain wave. And then eventually you start to slip into what we call theta. And the theta state is a very relaxed, very slow brain wave. It's a very visual state. So you'll start to see light and imagery. You'll, you'll start to dream in that state, even in the tank, when you're not asleep, you kind of go in and out of this dream state, hypnagogia, and you will have memories of things that you haven't thought of in years. Like literally the memory has just not once occurred to you since the event, but suddenly there it is kind of unfolding itself and coming into your consciousness. And I, I believe it's the brain sort of defragmenting and filing things that it's been keeping in kind of random access memory for years or decades even, right? And as you start to watch this happen, one of the techniques in the tank is to learn to watch this kind of thing, this activity of the mind, entering your dream states, being in touch with other intelligences and things like that while you're in these altered states of consciousness you learn to start to watch it without engaging with it or reacting to it in a way that speeds up your brain waves. So you, you sort of train yourself to be still in this theta state and sort of watch what all is being presented to you. And when you get really good at navigating that kind of space, your consciousness begins to expand. You really start to become very sensitive to not only what's going on in your own structure, your own body, your own energy field, but also in the energy fields of other people and you get a different kind of intuition, a kind of sensitivity to spirit that you didn't have before. It's an amazing journey to be on because you think you know what floating is. Like I say, that round float four or five, there's this epiphany. And then suddenly you're into float you know, 25 or 30 and you realize that floating has become something completely different. And just when you think you've got that figured out, you hit, you know, somewhere around float 80 or 100 and you realize that floating has become something different again. 
and I just haven't found the end of it yet. Even after 30 years of, of doing a lot of floating, I mean, I've, I just have thousands and thousands of hours in the tank and it, it never ceases to amaze me how deep into this meditative state you can go in the tank. The fact that it's keeping out all that external stimulation and all that distraction and everything just really allows you to go to amazing places. And I think it just gives you the benefit of just having a really open mind and clearer vision and stronger intuition, things like that. <laughs> Sorry. All right. So, so many questions I want to ask you right now. I'm so fascinated by this. No, I, lo I love it. I love it. And so to give our listeners context as well, because I told this to you before we started recording, I have floated only twice overall, you know, and I've just signed up to do a bunch of floats in my hometown where I live. And I'm looking forward to that, but I'm, I'm very new to this. I've only done two. And so certain things I can kind of see what you're saying. And physically and physiologically, I get how the tank in the zero gravity environment makes it unique. What I'd love for you to kind of help me understand, since I'm totally a rookie still at two, but I've got a fair amount. I've been meditating for quite a while. And I'm sure there are other people in the audience who have meditated for a while and have done yoga, but maybe haven't floated that much. You know, I'm trying to get a sense of the distinction because some of the things you've said, I get how they'd be specific to floating physically or physiologically, but a lot of the things in terms of cultivating awareness, they sound like fundamentally similar skills that you would get in say seated meditation. And we can view floating, at least this is certainly how I experienced it. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Like this is a kind of a, another way to meditate. But what makes meditating, of course, the context matters for sure. And what makes meditating in a tank a fundamentally different experience than normal meditation? What will you get out of that context that you might not get out of normal meditation in a seated position? So this is one of the reasons that I think the idea of floating has caught on with the urgency that it has in the last, you know, five to 10 years. You're getting the benefits of focused meditation practice. You're getting the same benefits in the tank. It's just a lot easier. We're doing so much of the heavy lifting just by getting you in the tank we're taking away all the distractions that you're normally having to contend when we're doing a traditional sitting practice. We're not dealing with gravity or temperature or light or sound. The way I view a traditional meditation practice, it's a practice of starting over, right? You get into the meditative space and then something tries to distract you, the mind, the ego, your physical surroundings. Like There's always something trying to pull you out of that meditative state. And the, the practice of meditation is really one of accepting that and starting over and trying to get back into the meditative state. The tank just takes away all those distractions. As you know, it's so unbelievably comfortable. You're floating there in zero gravity with no temperature. There's no pressure points on your body. It's better than laying down on the best bed you've ever laid down on, right? And so I think it just allows us the luxury of not having to defend ourselves from all these distractions while we enter this meditative state. There's nothing really to pull us out of it other than our own mind and our own ego. So once you get control of those things, 
you can just go deep, 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 deep in with no distractions, nothing pulling you out. We have people that have, you know, come in and floated with us that have decades long meditation practices. They're really committed to it. They're really good. And they say that, you know, in the tank, almost every time they float, they're getting to a place where they may only get to that place once or twice a year in their traditional sitting practice. So it's like a big easy button for meditation and, and getting those benefits of a good mindfulness practice. I could definitely see that for sure. I mean, for the average Westerner, I've done a lot of yoga and even still, even when I'm doing the, after years of doing yoga and I'll do yoga that morning, I can, my hips, you know, I can do whatever full kind of half Lotus posture and it's really comfortable for me. But when I sit cross-legged after a period of time, I've just, I'm never, I shouldn't say I'm never that steady, but there will be after a period of time, whether it's 10 minutes or 20 or 30 or whatever, eventually I'm going to need to adjust and, and to move. And that takes you out of it. And of course you can sit in a chair, but that has its own issues. And we're sitting in chairs all day and just releasing into a tank just sort of really allows you to settle in to that place of stillness much easier. So I could definitely see where you're coming from there. Yeah. So imagine if you could sit in meditation with no distraction and no having to get your butt comfortable or stretch your hip or, you know, imagine if you could do that for two, three hours or like, you know, I've done floats that are eight and nine hours long. Imagine just how beautiful it would be to sit in meditation and not be distracted or pulled out of it, even for two hours or three hours. That's a three hour float. It's real easy in a tank, man. You can get in there and you can get going. And the next thing you know, three hours is over. <laughs> wow. Three hours. I mean, eight is so epic. Even three sounds a little long right now, but eight is really epic. Like talk a little more about that. You know, how long were you floating until you got to eight hours and kind of, what does that look like? Do you do that during the day? Do you do that overnight? And do you really sleep at all in there? Kind of what, it, what's that experience like for you? Yeah, it's totally fine to sleep. Like you're not going to drown. You're not going to roll over. There's no way we've tried it. I've slept in them for hours and hours and they're very safe in that respect. So eight hours is, it's intense. Like you, you have to be a pretty committed floater to do something like that. You, you may have to get out once or twice in that session to use the restroom or something, you know, but it's easy to do that and get right back into your float when you get back in, especially after the first few hours, you're you're kind of in a different zone, even even while you're getting out of the tank and doing your thing and getting back in. It's still easy to stay in that space. So I did my first one, my first overnight float pretty quickly. I, I had probably done less than 20 floats before I did my first overnight float. It's kind of a, an experience that's hard to describe. <laughs> so much of what happens is ethereal in there after that much time, you know. You definitely will most likely leave your body. You'll, you'll go into an out-of-body experience. You'll, depending on the individual, you know, it's hard to, hard to say what's going to happen next, but I've done a lot of astral projection and traveling in those situations. I've made contact with other intelligences, other entities. You know, if you work with spirit guides or ascended masters, there's a pretty good chance you can contact them in those longer floats. There's really no boundaries to where you can go if you get good enough at going in real deep like that. That's incredible. That's something to aspire to for sure. <laughs> I also did a, a research project, and I, I've done this project now three times, where I did 
a float session every single day for a hundred days. And the shortest sessions were an hour long. The average sessions were two hours long. And then in that hundred days, I would also add at least one overnight float and a few longer, like three or four hour floats to basically be, try to understand more about what the cumulative effects of floating that often would be. And it's a very challenging thing to do. To be in the tank every day for 100 days is, I think, unnecessary, fun, but kind of unnecessary. <laughs> okay, so that, that invites a couple of questions. One, I want to hear your takeaways from doing that research experiment. And two, I then would like you to touch on what do you think is the ideal regimen, at least for you, or what would you recommend to other people? Well, the first question, the reason I think it's not really necessary, and the reason I say that it's hard to do, is a couple of things. One is that when we're in the tank and we're in these altered states of consciousness, we start doing some very deep transformative work. And when you start doing that kind of work, it's really important to give yourself time to integrate what it is that you're learning. And when you're floating every single day, you tend to go really deep into your float a lot of the time. And, and so you're, you're stacking up a lot of very transformative work without giving yourself the proper amount of time to integrate the lessons. That can become a problem. The other thing is that ordinary reality, consensus reality, begins to get quite slippery. <laughs> You're not really operating on the same plane as the average person at the grocery store, for instance. You start to become very sensitive to other people's energy. Our intention pushes out in front of us about 30 or 40 feet. That's why a lot of times you'll meet a stranger and you'll just instantly fall in love with them or instantly be repelled by them or just see a person from across the room. And you're like, wow, I really want to know more about that person, right? It's because we're, we're sensitive to people's intention. And when you're floating that regularly, you're, you become so sensitive to that, that it's, it's happening all around you on a spectrum of really good to really bad. And so you may be walking down the aisle of the grocery store and you see somebody who's 30 or 40 feet away from you and you know at your core that you need to avoid that person and their energy. <laughs> and it makes you want to turn around and walk down the aisle the other way. Like it's, it, it starts to get a little in the way of how we have to operate in consensus reality, I guess is what I'm trying to say. That's why I think it's not really a necessary thing to do. It's cool and it's interesting and it's fun, but it does pose a couple of problems. I feel like the amount that a person should float is really an, an individual choice. What's more important than quantity seems to be consistency. We've done a lot of research about this, and it's like this. If you only have the time and the money to float twice a month, say, you should try to be as consistent as possible with that. I float, you know, set it up so it's like I float every Monday afternoon at four o'clock or every other Monday afternoon at four o'clock or whatever it is for you. But try to be as precise as possible. It does a kind of metaprogramming to our brain where the more consistent we are with that, we can actually train ourselves to start reacting to the flotation tank before we get in it, right? We've actually shown that like if I'm consistent with my practice, if I float every other Monday at four o'clock, 
every other Monday morning, I wake up and my brain already knows that today is the day I'm going to float. And I actually start to have some of the physiological reactions that I would normally have in the tank. I have them before I ever go in the tank because of this metaprogramming, right? So we're recommending to people like don't float so much that it stresses you out financially or puts a burden on your time. Figure out something that works well for you, something that you can commit to and then stay consistent with it. That's where we see the best and most efficacious uh, floating experience with our customers and with ourselves. So um, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm really struck by the parallels between floating and other consciousness exploration techniques such as meditation and psychedelics. In fact, when you were starting to say you were just starting to answer my question, you said, you know, when you're in the tank, you're doing really deep transformative work. And immediately in my mind, before you even went on to your next sentence, I said, oh, of course, you're not leaving time for integration. Like I just knew that's where you were going with it because that's the same issue that I try to talk to people about with psychedelics, just the importance of integration. And it's, I think it's a similar thing for meditation as well. It's just such a crucial thing to integrate these experiences. And so I would ask, what's your advice for, what are the specifics of what that looks like in terms of how to integrate that? So for example, with psychedelics, you know, they were often done within a larger context, whether that was a religious context and sacramental context for plant medicines like peyote or ayahuasca, or whether it was LSD was first used in a psychiatrist office, which was a very structured container. So what does the integration process look like for someone who's floating? Is, are there a specific set of inquiry questions that you run through? Are there What kind of hacks do you have there to help people kind of process the experience? So are you asking about like going into the floating experience or are you talking about integration after the floating experience? So intention beforehand is absolutely something I, I would wanted to ask you. That was going to be my next question, but I was talking about after. But if you, but if you want to talk about both, because I'd love to know for both of them. So going into the tank, of course, it's important to understand that there's no rules to floating. <laughs> That's one of the things that I love about it. It's very non-dogmatic. It's largely non-dualistic. It's constantly changing. It's very unstructured, right? So there's a lot of different kinds of work that a person can set out to do in there. I mean, here's a little 3D chess for you. The flotation tank is a really great place to start doing integration work after we do work with psychedelics and plant medicines. We have a program of doing preparation floats before an ayahuasca retreat and then integration floats immediately after the retreat to help begin. Say more about what that looks like. I'm fascinated. <laughs> so I didn't mean to derail and I do remember the original question. <laughs> well, whenever we're working with plant medicines, of course, it's really to be going into the ceremony. I'm speaking from experience with ayahuasca. I'm a regular ayahuasca drinker. So using the flotation tank, before going into like a three-day retreat can really help to help us physically relax, bring our anxiety level down, get our body chemistry and our brain chemistry balanced out and just put us in a relaxed state before we go into ceremony. 
it's just really good for that. With all of these psychedelics and plant medicines can be a very, very intense experience. And especially like with a, like we do regular three-day ayahuasca retreats, it's three days of a lot of intensity. It's a huge ordeal. There's a lot of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual cleaning that's being done. A lot of stuff's being brought up from deep inside of us, you know. It's really nice to go into the flotation tank after such a intense visual and psychological and emotional ex- experience like ayahuasca. It's really beautiful to get into the tank in the calmness and the stillness of it and the, there's no sensory input and you can feel the medicine still working in your body and you're in touch with spirit and in touch with your higher self and it really gives you a calm environment to start to process what it is that you've just been through what have these last three or four days been about what have i been learning what were the messages that i was given by these plant teachers and the tank is a beautiful quiet serene environment to start to sort all that stuff out i love that we're touching on this because i can now share the experience with you that when I did my two floats with you, one was the day before my ayahuasca ceremony and the other was a day after. So, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> I intuitively sense this. Beautiful. Yeah. So, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? When we just are talking about a, a regular float, I'll, I'll back away from that, that for just a minute. When we're going into a float, you know, we can go in there with a really strong intention. We can go in there with a question. Like I say, there's no rules about it. But here's my personal advice, my, my personal recommendation. What I like to do is go in just completely open to what might happen and give yourself the permission to just relax and let go and then relax more and let go more. And just keep doing that. Just keep letting go more. Let go more. Let go more. How deep can I go? And what can I learn from that space, from that experience of just letting myself do that? That's a beautiful way to go into a float right there. That's awesome. That lets your higher self communicate to you. That lets spirit communicate to you. That's taking yourself into a non-ordinary reality, an altered state of consciousness where I can make myself highly receptive to the subtle energies that exist around me and get information and help and guidance and healing from those. I love that you shared that because I'm reading a book right now from one of my meditation teachers. I'm in a teacher training with her, Tara Brock. You might know her. She's big name in the Buddhist meditation world. She's written a book called Radical Acceptance. And this start of a chapter I read last night was she basically said something along the lines of, you know, at this particular point, she was talking about something she struggled with. I hadn't yet realized that acceptance was the whole of spiritual life. And it was one of those things where it's like, you know, when you read something, it's like, you're like, oh, I kind of knew that, but like not really fully until this moment. And I needed this person who's what much wiser than me to say that. And as you were talking about Letting go, I mean, in a lot of ways, letting go is, if not synonymous with, certainly very closely related to acceptance. And so I could see that just being such a, I think that's a a crucial theme that you hear come up, whether it's in meditation or 
therapy or any kind of spiritual practice. And so it's, it's great to hear it reaffirmed in another context. It just underscores once again, the importance of, of that. You know, in so much of the work that we do, not engaging and pushing back is a vital part of the practice, right? We, we learned this with plant medicines, especially ayahuasca. If you resist, you will suffer. Oh, yeah. Right? It's a Buddhist teaching about, you know, the things that we cling to are the things that will make us suffer. This is why I think the tank has such an important role to play in our consciousness development, in our spiritual development. It's functioning a lot with a lot of the same guidelines that all of these other practices they all have the same things in common. If you if you get in the tank and you resist what it's trying to allow you to do, then you'll stay at the surface and you'll have monkey mind and you'll be thinking about your grocery list and worried about the same things you always worry about, right? It's teaching you the same thing. If you can not cling, not engage, not push back against those things, you're going to have a whole different kind of experience. And so these lessons that serve us in ceremony with plant medicines. They also serve us in the tank. And those skills in the tank also serve us in doing psychedelics or shamanic work or spiritual work of any kind, right? It's all the same set of lessons. It's just different technologies. Right, right. Totally. That makes lots of sense. And so you touched on intention and kind of the experience working with our emotions when we're in the tank and even beginning to integrate the experience while we're still there in the tank. How about afterwards? You know, once you've gotten out later that day or the next day, what are some things that one can do to really process the experience and get the most out of it? Well, I'll tell you something that you can expect is an entire new sensation of your body and your energy body and your spiritual body. It just feels different and it changes your perspective you know, on a purely physiological level, our chemistry's reset, right? We've done some internal work. We've created some neurotransmitters. We've, you know, got some endorphin levels brought up, you know, some things that get depleted because we're never truly resting and giving our body and minds a break. Like on a purely physiological level, we feel different, right? On an energetic level, we, we feel different. On a spiritual level, we feel different. These complex layers combine and work in alignment with each other, this is what really changes our perspective on what's happening around us. And we can take those feelings and use them to better our lives, to better our relationships with people, to be more sensitive to and empathetic to other people and how we're affecting them. One thing about floating is it not only makes my world better, it makes the world better for the people that are around me. <laughs> I'm easier to live with. I'm not as stressed out and angry and intense, right? So the experience can affect not only you, but everything in your general vicinity. And with that new awareness and that new openness and that new focus, it really can help you to like process and start to integrate some of the things that you've learned in the tank, the, the memories that we talked about, the dreams that you might have, the interactions that you might have with other intelligences or your higher self, God or angels or light beings or however you see that realm, right? The information that they're giving you, it's easier for you to process when you're clear and you're focused physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually focused. It's 
easier to get the lesson and integrate it. I'm curious if you journal at all about your experiences or if you've ever experimented with that. I have in the past journaled extensively. And those are real fun to go back and and read, especially the ones from when I was really young and, and first getting into floating and really having my consciousness altered for the first time. Th- those, those are fascinating journals. I, I don't really do it much anymore. I've got a few businesses that I run <laughs> and uh, a, a busy um, a schedule of you know, speaking and podcasting and doing interviews and stuff. And it just seems like I'm, I'm talking about these experiences so much these days that it's always kind of in the forefront. I don't really feel like I have to write them down to remember important things that are happening. Well, of course, that's the other way of reflection. And I was going to ask about it. I'm just particularly conscious as a teacher of we really learned the importance, you know, in our teacher training of metacognition, you know, metacognitive processes in order to really process and learn information. And personal writing is one, and interpersonal communication, just speaking with others is, is definitely another form of it. And so I could see how either would work. And, and I was going to ask you that as well. So that makes sense. If you're just doing a lot of podcasting now, you're probably just constantly reflecting and processing on it through that means. Yeah. And we get the one of the great things about running the float center is we're interacting every day with people who are at all different levels with their floating practice. Some that have just started doing it, some that have been floating with us for years, some that floated for years before they came to us. And so we get to interact on a lot of different levels and and experience the kind of depth of communication that you have along that spectrum with, with the different people. Sometimes you're led into really, really deep conversations that you can't believe where it's going. And other times it's more surface and more pragmatic stuff, more day-to-day things. And we talk to our customers a lot about their floating experience and, and we learn a lot from everybody that we talk to. So we get the benefit of having those kind of discussions daily. It's always on the front of our minds now. Right. That's cool. That's great. I'm sure it's wonderful for you as well as for your customers, for both involved. I wanted to ask you because you talked about the experience really working on several layers. And it it really got me thinking about how, and I think you might have even used the term ecosystem at one point. I don't know if that was just me and my notes or if you use that, but I really think about, I talk a lot of times when I talk about psychedelics or I talk about meditation or yoga, I, I try to emphasize that they're really tools that exist within a larger ecosystem or belief system whether it was psychedelics in that ceremonial setting or the psychotherapeutic setting in the West, or whether it was meditation or yoga, people weren't randomly teaching meditation techniques, right? It it existed within a larger system of ethics and philosophy and metaphysics. And so I'm curious to kind of situate floating as a tour technology within a larger ecosystem and Undoubtedly, you know, this is totally going to depend, especially as it's happening in the West where we're all very diverse and individual. It's going to look different for everyone, but I'm just curious for you personally, what does this look like for you? How does floating kind of serve within a larger set of beliefs or along with other practices, whether it be yoga or meditation, to kind of create a more holistic picture in terms of mental and physical, emotional health? Uh, that's kind of a big one to answer, I guess. I would say most of the time, floating is my primary spiritual practice. 
it's not that way for everybody. You know, tanks are really popular for athletes and veterans that are dealing with PTSD, people with really stressful jobs. There's a lot of different reasons that, that floating can be a part of a person's life. What I think you're asking about, though, is more of, I think the float tank is my, is like my primary and constant spiritual practice. It is for me what meditation is for most people, because I don't really do a traditional sitting practice anymore. Float, floating is my primary practice. And I'll do other work around that, like, like we discussed. I'm experienced and regular ayahuasca drinker. I'm a shamanic practitioner, so I do work in, in the area of shamanism. They're all kind of rolled up into one big thing, though, for me. It's just sort of my way of living, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it. It's, I don't know if that puts enough of a framework on it to answer your question. No, that's that's fine. I mean, it's it's totally whatever it it looks like for you personally. And so <laughs> I didn't have specific expectations as to uh, an answer. I mean, I, I'm kind of curious about the same thing for you, you know, being new to floating. I'm wondering what were your impressions after a couple of floats and you have a meditation practice and you, know, you floated on either side of an ayahuasca ceremony. Like, can't you kind of feel it as like a potential component of the work you do? <laughs> oh, definitely. So I can definitely basically see it as another tool, you know, another complementary practice for consciousness exploration. And not only that, but just sort of training the mind, developing self-awareness, developing better self-management of my emotions, things like that. What I think I haven't developed because I'm so new to it is a feel for the nuances of how floating is distinct from meditation and yoga. And, you know, you gave a great answer as to those differences. I don't think I'm really going to know what that means for me until I go deeper into it myself. So at this point, it's pretty superficial, but there's no question that I, I see it as another complementary practice for sure. I've always considered the flotation tank to be a psychedelic medicine. It's mind activated medicine, right? It's just a different technology to do that same kind of work. That's why I'm a purist when it comes to floating. I, I really don't advocate for people using other compounds or drugs or psychedelics in the tank. It's not to say that I haven't done it, <laughs> but just over the years, I've kind of learned that like, it's so cool to know that I can get into these spaces, these incredible altered states of consciousness, these non-ordinary realities without doing anything other than just getting in the float tank and having good skills for floating, good techniques to get really deep and stay really deep and not get pulled out of it. The fact that we can get into these spaces on our own, that's amazing to me. That gives me a lot of questions about consciousness, what it is, where it comes from, why we have it, what we're supposed to do with it, what are we going to do with it when we shed the spacesuit and go on to the next level. Like The fact that we can get there on our own is important. Yeah, I could see that totally. And, you know, I heard you and Duncan talking about this and I thought that he made an interesting point as well, which is he tried it with mushrooms and he very clearly got the message when he was in there. He's like, nope, this is too much. You know, it floating is powerful enough on its own. And we have this temptation right. where we're like, oh, this is great. 
A is great and B is great, right? Floating's great and so are psychedelics. What if I combine the two? Wouldn't that be twice as great? But sometimes, you know, it's not. Sometimes, like that's our, our Western can't get enough, always more mentality. I can totally see why floating itself would be enough. I actually had a similar thought the other day because I tried this technology. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called the Ajna light. It's it's interesting. It's actually uh-huh. developed by this guy. You've heard of that. Yeah. I've used it a lot. You have. I just met the guy the other day, Guy Harriman. I actually interviewed yeah. him. Oh, cool. And I had this same thought. Yeah. What did you think about it? Well, it was funny. I thought it was really potent, you know, like had some very intense visual experiences then right after I was done with it, I had the same thought. I was like, oh, what if I microdose and did that? And then like two seconds later, I was like, I don't need to do that. Like that was intense enough. Psychedelics are intense enough. Why do I need to combine the two? It's just the mind's ability to just impulse to try to just say more, more, more and not be content with the experience. And I, I like the point that you made and that Duncan made just trying to be like, there's something to be said for just focusing on one thing and that you could really access such a powerful state without having to ingest an additional substance. Yeah. And if you look at the flotation tank as a psychedelic medicine and you abide by the ethic of mastering medicine before you mix medicines, that's also a really important thing here because I don't know if we ever really master a powerful psychedelic. And so no, adding, it's always the master of us. <laughs> yeah. And, and so adding that to a flotation tank and, you know, like I said earlier, I got thousands of hours in the flotation tank and I still don't understand how far it can actually go. I would hesitate to say that I've mastered the flotation tank and I'm a hundred percent positive. I have, I've never mastered a psychedelic or a plant medicine. So I just don't go there. I just don't mix the two. Right. And I like what you said about mastering a, or if not mastering, you know, really appreciating one of these technologies or medicines on their own rather than combining it. I think that's a better way to say it because it's not, it's not that it's wrong to, I almost unwittingly articulated a criticism that people have of psychedelics. Well, you should be able to get that experience without ingesting a substance, which I don't agree with. We can look at all of these as a form of technology, I think, whether you're taking a hit of LSD or whether you're getting in the float tank or whether your meditation cushion is a form of technology in itself to help you drop deeper into meditation. But there's something to be said for really focusing on one of these things and appreciating that discipline. You know, I, I hear this within the psychedelic world too. People talk about combining different things like oh, I'm going to do mushrooms and this, or we do ayahuasca with this. And I'm like, really? Isn't ayahuasca strong enough on its own? Or isn't LSD strong enough on its own? You're going to combine that with something? Like, I don't really see the need for that. Yeah. And especially when we're talking about something like ayahuasca, when we're with that medicine, we have access to the spirits of these plants. We're preparing space for the spirit of the ayahuasca vine, the spirit of the chakruna, to enter us, to have a healthy environment to live in, right? We go to great efforts to like do preparatory diets and to keep our bodies as clean as possible so that we're a good house for the spirit of these plants. 
And we're with with ayahuasca, we have the ability to use the ikaros to call in the spirits of other trees and other plant helpers to help aid ayahuasca in the healing that she's doing for us. So if there's that much focus on preparing ourselves for this spirit to work in us, how could we then suppose it would be all right to tamper with another very powerful plant teacher like mushrooms or peyote or wachuma, right? Like respect these things, respect these teachers, give them free space, uncluttered space to do the specific work that they do. They're not the same thing and they're not doing the same kind of work. We need to honor those plant teachers. No, I totally agree with you. I was going to say, I think in particular, ayahuasca is a jealous mistress, they say. (laughs) And I can see that. Here's a really interesting story about that. After my first three-day retreat with ayahuasca, I went immediately back and got in the tank. And I was still very much with the medicine, maybe not mareado, but pretty, you know, still feeling the medicine pretty strongly. And when I got into the tank, the spirit of ayahuasca came into that tank immediately and very much came across with the this, like, what are you doing kind of feeling from, from her, you know? And I had to reckon with that. I had to like say, hey, you know, this is my thing. This is my practice. This is where I go to start my integration. It was almost like I had to clear it with ayahuasca or there was going to be something happening. <laughs> I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but that is a real experience that I had with it. Well, for anyone who's who's worked with ayahuasca, it doesn't right. really sound far-fetched. <laughs> right. <laughs> I get it. You know, I actually really want to want to talk about this for a second because I've heard you talk about a float tank as interfacing with a form of intelligence and it sort of having this sort of distinct feminine presence. And as you were talking about this, I thought, wow, this sounds a lot like the way people talk about ayahuasca. And so... I'd be curious to hear you say more about that, not only for the float tank, but before we go there, I'd love for you to answer a question about ayahuasca, since you clearly have some experience there that I love to ask of people who have done ayahuasca, because I just find this fascinating. I mean, it's, it's totally acknowledging up front that we're all going off our intuition here, you know, and that's all it is, but I'm just asking your intuition. People often describe ayahuasca as interfacing with a form of intelligence, whether it's a spirit or a female divine presence or plant consciousness or intelligence. It really does seem to feel that way. And even the most rational and skeptical of people, and I'm pretty rational and skeptical, you know, will seem to find this experience with ayahuasca. And if you're in this camp, it can really mess with your worldview, I think in a, in a good way, you know, cause it really teaches you what you don't know, but it seems to be this very strong sense. And I asked Dennis McKenna this and Dennis was like, it does seem to be that way. And I have a personal instinct, but as a scientist, I'm not sure how to interpret it. And I'm just curious, what's your personal take on what that is? Is it, do you strongly feel that it's a form of plant intelligence and ayahuasca's change your view of consciousness? Are you more unsure and you're not sure if that is just simply how the mind reads that experience? Or what's your take? This is such a great question. <laughs> the pragmatic Newtonian Western mind 
that I have wants to at least acknowledge the possibility that we're, we're just under the influence of a powerful compound. And because we might have experienced some programming about ayahuasca being feminine, it's represented that way in artwork. We hear people share anecdotes about their experiences. And so we're a little programmed to, to experience her in that way. That's the Western Newtonian brain talking. My experience is that this is an incarnation of the divine feminine. This is a conduit to the spirit of the earth, the feminine spirit of the mother, the Pachamama. I feel that in my heart when I'm with that medicine. The maternal, loving, caring, healing, feminine energy that comes from that medicine. I feel it. I experience it. I've seen visions of ayahuasca. I've seen her. I've felt her presence. I've had her physically move my body and rock me and tell me that it's okay. These are all very maternal things. And that's why I think she's spoken of in that way. And that's why she's represented in the artwork. That's why, that's why the language around ayahuasca is making reference to the feminine. I think it's just an incarnation of the divine feminine. That's what my heart tells me. You know, my heart, my instinct tells me the same thing. And I definitely have that Newtonian reductionist Western mind too. But yeah, it's, I think ayahuasca really opened me up to sort of the importance of intuition. And one thing about, you know, you raise the questions of confirmation bias, which are, I think, good ones to raise. And, and Dennis brought that up when we talked, but my response to that is there were certain things that I had not heard about ayahuasca. So for example, you know, the female presence I'd heard about, but for example, I did not know that it was a common experience to incarnate as animals. And for example, very specific ones like jaguars or big cats. And so I didn't know that before. Snakes. Snakes. So I'd heard people saw snakes. Yeah, I heard people saw snakes, but I didn't know about incarnating as animals and I didn't hear anything about cats. And I had an experience on, it was like, we did it over two weeks. We did it eight times. This was in Peru and this happened on like the fourth or fifth ceremony. And I had a very powerful experience where I turned into a series of animals, just metamorphosizing one into the next. And the last was a big cat, like a jaguar. And when I shared this experience the next day with people at the breakfast table, I'd say there were about 18 people in our group and about mm. two thirds of them experienced some kind of animal incarnation. And there were the very common themes, several people, it was a lot of people with a big cat snakes was another. And the funny thing is this was our fourth or fifth ceremony. No one had said this up until now. And all of a sudden it happened to everyone on the same night. So it strains credulity in my view, you know, there's a difference between being skeptical and then there's a difference between like your rational mind is actually trying to convince yourself that evidence isn't there because it frustrates your worldview. And that doesn't like how insecure it makes your ego feel. Right. Well, I'm, you know, my experience with the medicine is that there's many nights when uh, we share very similar experiences in the circle. And certainly, I don't know if you talk to the shaman, to your maestro about this, but, you know, the they call him a maestro for a reason. Like he's directing the ceremony. He's calling in the specific kinds of, of spirits, animal, plants, trees, 
to elicit a certain kind of experience from the ceremony. So it's very possible that the shaman that night was specifically working with animal spirits in order to give you guys the gift and the benefit and the knowledge that only those animal spirits can bring you. That's a great point. Yeah. When we sing Icaros in ceremony, it's not for entertainment purposes. These Icaros are finely tuned tools that we use to call in very specific spirits. So like when the shaman starts to sing an Icaro to call in a specific tree, you'll hear him make the call, right? He may say, like actually calling a specific spirit with that Icaro. So it doesn't surprise me at all that you guys would have a shared experience. I think it happens a lot around ayahuasca. I think it does. And for people who think it sounds, you know, kooky, I mean, think about, well, first of all, it invites a lot of questions about what we know around consciousness or don't know, and also around flow states. And of course, the two are really tied up together. It's like the one thing I would say to people on a really basic level is if you don't believe people's energy is tied up together, you know, no need to do ayahuasca, just like watch a basketball game. Like, and tell me, watch March Madness and tell me that you don't think people's energy is tied up together <laughs> because a basketball game is a perfect example of that. What has been in, you know, and you can say ayahuasca on this and then we can bring it back to the float tank too, but really what those two tools have taught you, how they've caused you to revise your view on what is consciousness Let's start with that before we go into the flow state, sort of what you think consciousness is and how that's changed over time from working with plant medicine and from floating. That's kind of the million dollar question, man. What is consciousness? I mean, I think for a lot of us, that's why we keep going back in to do this work, whether it's with the tanks or plant medicine or whatever. I think there's some part of us that's questioning, what is this? thing that I feel inside of me, because obviously I'm not just this physical body. We prove it to ourselves every time that we enter these altered states of consciousness and lose the sensation of this body. What What is that thing that we're experiencing? Who is it that's listening to these thoughts that are coming out of my mouth right now, right? So, you know, I think that's a pretty big question. What it's teaching me is that I have no idea what is really going on. Because some of these things are so real, they're experienced in such an intense and visceral way, and yet you can't measure them and you can't photograph them. And you, it's, you know, the, some of these things are very hard to quantify, and yet they are very real. A lot of times when I'm doing uh, ayahuasca ceremony, or I, I also work in uh, shamanic journeying, there's a difference between being in this world and being in the spirit world. There's a difference between you know, Kevin and Adrian talking to each other and Kevin and one of my primary spirit helpers, my spirit allies, my guides, right? But they're both just as real. When I'm doing a shamanic journey and I contact this spirit that helps me on a regular basis, that conversation is just as real and meaningful as the one we're having now. I'm getting a lot of information to bring back and help answer questions or help people or heal myself or whatever, right? So it's a real thing. It's, it, it has a result, right? If, if, if nothing else, you can, measure its, you can measure it by the results that you got from it, the knowledge, the information that you got from it. 
So it just begins to pose this bigger question about what's real, what's consensus reality even mean? How much is actually going on that the vast majority of the people are not even aware is going on around us? Because I think those of us that work in these realms, we feel intuitively and we, we're working every day in slightly different way than what the average person is. Yeah, definitely. Well said. In a lot of ways, you gave the answer that Dennis McKenna did, which I really liked. He's like, you know, the number one thing about working with plant medicine is that it just teaches you, you don't know shit. You know, you think you know shit, but you don't know shit. <laughs> and it's like, it teaches you a lot more than that, but that's like the foundational starting point. It's like, okay, stop, like humility, like let go of what you think you know. You don't know nearly as much as you think you know. And then from there, you can be open to what's possible. That's what I was going to say. That's the worst thing you can do for yourself is to think you know what's going on. That's so inhibiting. That's so confining, right? I guess that's what makes these plant teachers so powerful is they can just blast through that. Oh, here. Oh, Kevin, you think you know what's going on? Here, let me show you some of this. How you feel about that new thing that you've never thought even existed, right? It has, it has a way of just smashing through that ego that thinks it knows and that it's in control. That's really what we're doing, right? We're really just like tearing down that ego and finding out who that being is that lives behind that ego. Learning how to communicate to the world using the body and the ego as a tool to communicate what's true and real in our heart versus having our bodies and our egos just running the show all the time. Absolutely. Breaking down that sense of self. And it, I think this can be tricky to talk about for a lot of people who are interested, but they haven't studied a lot of Eastern meditation or Eastern philosophy, because sometimes we take that for granted. You know, a lot of teachers who are well-versed in both, someone like Tarbrock or Jack Kornfield, who are both Buddhist meditation teachers, but also clinically trained Western psychologists will also point out that in the West, having a healthy, well-formed ego is like this foundational, important point of Western psychology. It's a good thing. And in the East, a lot of the language of how the ego is that it's problematic. But I think just as a starting point, you know, for a lot of people for whom this may sound a little bit unfamiliar is that when we talk about an ego or a sense of self, you know, it really implies structure, you know, the self like that we really are a well-formed identity personality. But when you really begin to examine it, upon closer inspection, whether it's in meditation or in a float tank or on psychedelics, you begin to find that what you're calling a self is really a constellation of different sensations, you know, moods, thoughts, feelings, phenomenon that the mind is interpreting and processing, but they're arising and falling all the time. And attaching to any one particular state or trying to fix it as permanent really is is largely an illusion. And that's not to say we're a totally blank slate tabula rasa. I don't think that because the mind's designed in a certain way that gives it structure that we bring to bear on how we interpret our experiences. But the notion that we are as well formed of an identity as we think we are is an illusion. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy because the more we do work to get past our ego, the more we understand that, right? That's kind of the bait. The enticement is like, wow, every time I do this work, 
I learn a little bit more about this big question that is haunting all of us as humans. <laughs> and so it like encourages us to go back and do more of the work because each time we get a little bit of revelation, we get a little more understanding, we get a little more insight, but you got to get, you know, it comes with a price and the price is like taking down the ego. Absolutely. I don't necessarily think the ego is a bad thing. I always reference the ego as a tool, right? We just want to make sure that we're using it as a tool. It's not using us as a tool. That's, right. that's the important distinction. Right. Exactly. When you start buying into every storyline instead of realizing that it simply creates different storylines and you don't necessarily have to buy into every one. Well, Kevin, I think that's a wonderful place to wrap up. I want to give you a chance before we do so in order to tell people where they can find you on social media as where as they can find any more information about your float centers or any of your other businesses. So the best place to start is zerogravityinstitute.com. That's a good place to start to just get information about floating and our float center and all the things that we're doing. And we have, of course, the associated Facebook sites and Twitters and Instagrams and things like that. You can follow me personally at Floatmaster Kev. And yeah, I guess that's probably the best place to find me. I'm, I, I get around a lot. I do speak at, at several conferences every year and a lot of podcasts and things like that. I'm pretty easy to find. Are those events on your personal website? Yeah, nothing yet for 2018 because I've still got so much stuff up in the air that I haven't really started putting anything out. But as things get solid, I'll be definitely be putting them up there. Excellent. But I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a really interesting conversation and I thoroughly enjoyed it and appreciate your time. Much. I also really enjoyed it, Adrian. I'm, it's so great to talk to somebody that has the level of understanding that you obviously do. And we have so much in common and so many shared experiences. It was um, very easy to talk to you. And I just appreciate you giving me the opportunity to have this conversation with you and for your audience. And I just wish you a lot of peace and love, my brother. Thanks, Kevin. Right back at you. Let's talk again soon. I really hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin. He's a really interesting guy who clearly has a ton of experience about floating and a lot of wisdom to share on floating as well as plant medicine. And for anyone really who's interested in the topic of consciousness exploration and, and how the mind works. Kevin is clearly a guy with a lot of insight to offer. So hope you enjoyed that conversation and I welcome any feedback from you all, comments, questions, anything you would like to see more of in the show, something you'd like to see less of, suggestions for guests. Either way, I'd really love to hear from you. So I'd say the best ways to do so would be comments on Twitter. The handle is at Hacking the Self. Also, Facebook is good. The Hacking the Self Facebook page would be a good section to leave comments. Either one of those platforms would really be the ideal for having a conversation. But if you're someone who doesn't use social media and would prefer email, you can also reach me. The email address is hackingtheself at gmail.com. So... Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to bringing you another episode in the near future. Take care and Happy New Year. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. 
That's patreon.com slash hacking the self. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.